the stories we tell are always changing. They evolve. They shape our cultural identities. And in the world of publishing, they are slowly becoming more inclusive. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with fantasy author K.A. Dorr. Her debut fantasy trilogy, The Chronicles of Gadid, will conclude next week with The Unconquered City. Kai and I discuss the pros and cons of switching your keyboard layout, ancient Roman history, and the challenges of writing a series of standalone novels. I had a lovely time interviewing Kai, and I think you'll enjoy what she had to say. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, Kai. It's great to have you with us today. It's good to be here. Thank you for letting me into your space. Yeah. And uh, so I like to start out with a relatively standard question for most people. But when I was doing my research for this, I saw uh, in your State of the Door blog post back in February, you mentioned that you switched your keyboard layout from the standard QWERTY layout to Dvorak, which I think is how you say that. I've never actually had to say that out loud. But I was wondering, why did you make the switch and how are you feeling about it a few months later? You know, I'm not sure if it's Dvorak or Dvorak. I kind of assumed it was Dvorak after the composer, but uh, I'm not you're sure. probably correct. Yeah, <laughs> I um... have never heard it spoken aloud until just now. <laughs> well, I say Dvorak because I'm fancy like that, I suppose. But yeah, no, I initially switched over because I was starting to have a lot of wrist pain from doing all my day job work and also all all the writing that I was doing, um, and I was noticing that I was starting to have pain in my wrist a lot sooner, even after just writing for a little while. And so it was either, you know, stop writing or find something or, you know, look into those carpal tunnel remedies or something like that. And I was just looking around at that when Devin, um, Devin Madsen actually brought up the fact that she had switched from QWERTY to, to Dvorak a while ago because of wrist pain. And she mentioned at the same time that she'd not only switched and her wrist pain had gotten better, but she'd actually gotten a lot faster at writing. So I heard that and I was like, oh, I would like to be faster at writing as well. Well, faster typing. So it just happened to be a really good time to switch because I just turned in my last contracted work for a while. Um, and I'd just done copy edits and page proofs. And I honestly, I had like three months basically where I didn't have anything do do. So I decided I would just go ahead and see if I could switch. So the first thing I did was jump in headfirst and change my keyboard layout over at work, which was not the best idea. (laughs) (laughs) So there's actually a method to this, to switching. Um, So after like a few days of being really frustrated, I, you know, took a moment and Googled how to switch from QWERTY to Dvorak. And there were some like, there's some basic typing games and other things. So I played with those for a while and still until I started to get the muscle memory of the keyboard layout. And then I printed out the layout on a piece of paper and put it on my monitor. And then I switched it over. And so it was, it was fun at first because I basically played it like a game and it was like, you know, it's new, it's different. And then I learned the layout and I didn't have to look at the piece of paper. And that's when it got really, really frustrating because I was still not fast. It had been like three weeks. And why was I not as fast at writing in Dvorak as I was at typing in QWERTY, which QWERTY I'd been typing with since I was, you know, since I'd had a computer for so almost three decades. But at that point, it was too late because I tried to switch back over to QWERTY and I had basically lost my muscle memory already. Oh, no. Um, it, It came back if I really tried, but I realized, you know, okay, I've committed. I still have another you know, two months or so before I, I have anything else do, I need to just do this. But so I did, and it was awful. And sometime in the meantime, the last like month, I realized that I wasn't thinking about it anymore and that my typing speed had gotten to almost QWERTY levels. And now it's about the same. So that, that was a fun experience. Um, but at the same time, my wrist pain has completely disappeared. So it was worth it. And hopefully, I, I think it was Sam. Yeah, Sam Hawk, who I think she also switched to Dvorak. And she said that like three months it took to get back to typing speed. And then in six months, she was actually typing faster. So I'm 
holding it to her if I'm not typing faster in in another three months. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah, that's that's basically been what I've heard is from most people that have switched over is it is just so much more ergonomic. It feels better. It's more efficient. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm I'm toying with the idea of making the switch myself. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, the one of the other downsides to switching was that it was taking so hard to think about typing um, that I didn't write for like two months. So you do have Ah. to kind of take that into account that it you might not be able to be as have as such a creative output because when you sit down to write, you know, usually you're thinking about the story and you're not really thinking about the mechanical aspect, but when you're, you're basically learning a completely new skill. So you need to be able to focus on that skill. Right. It's frustrating, but it's (laughs) worth it now. (laughs) Yeah. I know for me, uh, also, kind of inspired by Devin Madsen uh, in her new, well, not new anymore, keyboard uh, that she got that's more ergonomic. It's split. It's got all the thumb keys. So I got something similar and it feels like I've switched to a different layout because every time I try to hit one button, like the keys are slightly off. And so I end up closing the spreadsheet I'm working on. Oh no. (laughs) Yeah. I, I still occasionally like hit the wrong keys and refresh instead of like opening a tab or something. But yeah. I can't, yeah, I've seen her, I've seen her keyboard layout as well. And I guess if my wrist pain comes back, I'll try that. But for now, I mostly work on a laptop. So I don't really know how I would use a keyboard, an an extra keyboard outside of that. Right, right. Well, back into kind of official interview territory then. (laughs) Uh, I always like to start off asking people, how did you first fall in love with science fiction and fantasy? And when did you decide to become a writer? So this one is always a little hard to answer because I can't pinpoint a certain time where I was like, oh, I actually really love fantasy, so I'm going to keep reading it. It kind of segued naturally from what I was reading as a kid because a lot of children's books back in my age, um, back in my day in the 90s, were were very fantastical. So then going from things like dealing with dragons to then picking up like an Anne McCaffrey book was not very difficult. So I guess part of what helped that transition was the fact that my dad actually reads a lot of fantasy and sci-fi. And so that was just there waiting for me on the bookshelf at home. So when I got bored of my, of the books I was currently reading, I would go and peruse that and then start pulling stuff down and reading it. And at first that was actually, um, my mother's books were also on there and they are most, they were mostly Harlequin romances. So at first they pulled down a bunch of Harlequin romances when I was nine. Um, and I read them and the plot was fine, but I was very confused by all these interruptions that I didn't quite understand what was going on. There was a lot of metaphors. Um, so eventually I got bored of those because of the frequent interruptions and I don't know, they were, it was weird. And then I started picking up the fantasy books from the shelf and then it was just downhill from there because I had a bike and I could get to the library and I found the same section in the library and there was no stopping me. And then how I became a writer was kind of in the same boat as in I was always making stories as, you know, a kid as you do. And then I just kind of never stopped. (laughs) So (laughs) I don't want to say I never really stopped with childish things because that makes it sound like a bad thing. But I just, I went from making stories up to writing them down with friends. And then I found fan fiction. And then it was basically downhill from there in the same way. Yeah, I've actually heard from quite a few writers now that they're kind of their first foray into officially trying this whole writing thing is in fan fiction. Yeah, well, it's a very, it's very supportive and very forgiving. And I know I wrote, I actually Looking back, I realized that I was writing fanfic before I knew it was fanfic. Um, I was really in, into Animorphs. Well, I'm still into Animorphs. Um, <laughs> and my ba- my first original, supposedly original fiction was very much thinly disguised Animorph fanfic. But yeah, it has a whole, out, outside of, you know, just writing self-insert and feeling that like, oh, I can finally see myself in, in the books I read kind of feeling. There's the support system online where if you post something almost always I mean not necessarily almost always someone will read it but when they comment it's almost always positive comments so there's a built-in like uh what is that called instant gratification there we go (laughs) 
which isn't necessarily a good thing to get used to as a writer and an author, but it's a good way to get started and to keep writing past those first few dozen years of just honestly not good writing. <laughs> Nothing that you should be sharing too broadly, but the fanfic community was was super supportive and I don't know where I'd be without that encouragement, basically. Yeah, especially as a young fledgling writer, I feel like that kind of encouragement is so important because, you know, like the whole stereotype of one day I'll write a book or something. Almost Mm -hmm. everyone I know has said that to me at some point or sometime. uh, And so many people just like make it a page or two in and then stop. So I feel like that nurturing environment is is really vital. Yeah. And they're they're waiting for you to keep writing. And it's even because it was mostly chapter by chapter stuff. Um, I didn't have, um, I mean, I say I had people waiting for it, but it was like, you know, one or two online friends, but that's enough. That's enough yeah. to keep you going and writing each week and putting up chapters and finishing things. So having that encouragement, don't know where I'd be without that. Absolutely. Well, so last December, you said in an interview with LGBTQ Reads that you're a historian <laughs> at heart, if not on paper. Uh, So I'm wondering, what area of history interests you the most? Yeah, so I don't have a bachelor's in history, but I actually studied classics in college. And that was largely because I was already into Latin as a language. And then classics kind of introduced history to me in a way that I could enjoy and understand. So my first love is the one that I still am most interested in, and that's ancient Rome and ancient Greece. And a lot of that is because it's not only so familiar to us now, but it's also still very, it's very culturally different, but it's also very culturally the same. So it's interesting to look at the the parallels between things that happen now or happen in the last 20 years and what was happening back then and the way people think of themselves now and the way people thought of themselves then and the fact that like, you know, there's always dirty poetry and and (laughs) terrible graffiti and like cheap shots and like political jokes. And I just love that, you know, you can go back 2000 years and find a lot of the same stuff that people are doing today. Yeah, I know. uh, I think I read recently that fast food type of things actually existed back in like ancient Rome. And that kind of blew my mind because I figured that, you know, that's impossible. That can't be something that's been around for that much time. But I guess we're not really that different from how humanity used to be. Yes. And it was, I mean, it was largely because having an open flame in some of those, some of the poorer sections of Rome would have ended up burning the entire area down, which did happen a few times because they were mostly living really close together and in wooden structures. So you couldn't really cook as at home as much. So cooking at home was more of a like uh, an upper class thing. And so you had to have people with like carts and on the street who were selling fast food for people to just pick up as they go and do their work. Yeah, it's 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 crazy the things we think are modern that are not at all. Yeah, and it all makes sense, really, when uh, the more I learn about history, the more I'm like, well, of course it was that way. But mm-hmm. I, I don't know, all of the assumptions that I have, like, I'm sure I still have this whole bag of assumptions with me that I don't even realize are false. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of that is because we we glamorized history so much. A lot of the the academics and the writings on that period that we grew up with in the, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s were from a time where they basically glamorized the Rome and Greece and tried to fit it into their own worldview instead of understanding that it was something different. So a lot of us do come away with it with this kind of more of an idea that it was more foreign than it is the same because of those, those writings. And that's something that's kind of, I don't want to say infected, but it's really influenced a lot of our media about those times as well in the movies. Yeah, absolutely. So years and years of standardized tests, I kind of often thought of history as just like these boring, dry facts, uh, but there's so much like story involved. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts, how history can change over time and how the stories it tells us can shape our cultural identity. So I actually have a really good example for this one. Um, okay. And it's, it's Gothic architecture. Hmm. It is. So Gothic architecture is, it was created because of a specific 
and now we understand it, incorrect assumption about history. And that was that the Goths were a terrible, the Goths who invaded Rome. So the, Aust- the Ostrogoths and the Visigoths were, were a destructive force. And well, they weren't, this was the assumption. Sorry, I got to like clarify that because I actually, <laughs> that was part of my studies um, in colleges. I actually wrote an entire thesis on the Goths. So I might be a little, I might know too much about that. Oh, anyway, wow. So there was this, this understanding that the, the Goths had destroyed Western civilization as we knew it and cast everything down into darkness and, you know, decay and decadence. Well, no, decadence, I guess, was the Roman equivalent. But anyway, so there was this idea that the Goths were this dark, massive, terrible force. And so Gothic architecture was actually named that after the fact. And it was named by people who were elevating Greek and Roman ideas and also art and culture and architecture. So the Hellenistic, the like columns and that kind of architecture came after the whole Gothic, well, quote unquote, Gothic age of architecture. And it was definitely like a contrast of those two. And it was part of the reason why they called the Gothic architecture Gothic, because they were saying it's ugly. It's an antithesis to what is straight and pure and all these other things. So Gothic architecture was created completely outside of any actual Goths. <laughs> it wasn't huh. actually some Goths who came together and were like, we're going to make some architecture now. It was like, you know, centuries and centuries later. And then it was named that after the fact by the people who were, I forget it was if it was the Renaissance exactly, was when they, they started naming it that. Um, and then, of course, you have another century or two later, and you have Gothic literature. And that was basically looking back at Gothic architecture <laughs> and taking it as a, um, as like a creative source, as an as a influence, as, as an inspiration for these darker, um, these darker stories about individuals and this romantic on the stories about like houses and you know, all those other themes that I'm not as aware of because that it was not my thesis. <laughs> but you can kind of look at that. You can look at that that reaction, that literary genre came out of a misunderstanding of a whole architectural realm, which was then labeled Gothic out of a misunderstanding of an entire culture before that. So you just kind of see this change over time as people continue to interpret history in their own way. We get different genres, different, different cultures, different reactions to that, depending on where you are in history. And then not to continue talking about history for too much longer, but you can also kind of look (laughs) at (laughs) in the last like 20 or 30 years, the shift in how we approach history, um, understanding history has changed so much and it's definitely changed our understanding of our own selves. Looking specifically at U.S. American history, you can see how we went from, well, at least in the white lens, we had this idealized view of our history. And I feel like, especially in the last 20 years, that's been really starting to be picked at more. I think it's starting to affect us on a broader cultural level as well, which is good because, you know, it was very idealized for much too long. So, right. but then that's kind of where that backlash is coming from now too, because it is history is our cultural identity. Who our forebears were influences in our minds, who we are now. You can see that in politics all the time, people calling back to like Lincoln or Washington or whatnot. And there's these idealized value systems that we hearken to, which never really existed. So if we start to pick those apart, who are we? And then we're left figuring out who we are from what's left over, who we actually want to be, instead of trying to call back to these times that never really were. Yeah, history is just absolutely fascinating. And I feel like all of my history classes when I was younger and actually in school were so wasted on me then. So I wish I could take them now and just like dive into all of this. I mean, to be fair, a lot of the ones back then were, well, at least in high school, um, I hated history in high school. I hated it so much because it was it was such a, 
emphasis on memorizing dates and names and kings. And it didn't really draw back and look at the whole ebb and flow of it. Or, and it didn't even look at like what was happening on like the person to person level. So I didn't get that until I started studying classics and started reading about, you know, like I mentioned earlier, the, the, the poor, where the poor used to live and the fact that they had to have fast food basically, which I guess is very similar to today. And that, you know, they don't have the time to cook. They don't have the resources to make, to make food. I know, I mean, I, I say they, and I mean, I don't have the time to cook. I know a lot of people who don't have the time to cook. So we rely heavily on fast food, but anyway, that's it. That's a tangent. <laughs> hey, tangents are some of the best things on podcasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, anyways, uh, so this does have a point and it does all lead up to your actual work itself. So it's probably <laughs> past time we start talking about that. So I guess, could you kind of just give us a brief pitch to what exactly are the Chronicles of Gadid? So they are queer assassins saving the day. They're supposed to be fun and fast reads. The first book, The Perfect Assassin, came out last year, and it's a murder mystery with ghosts and rooftop fights. The second book, The Impossible Contract, also came out last year because, I don't know, I'm crazy. No, Tor is crazy. (laughs) (laughs) That wasn't me. And that is more of an adventure fantasy with ghosts and undead camels. And then the third book, so those, those first two are more standalones. And then the third book draws from each and it comes out in June, on June 16th. And that is The Unconquered City. And that is kind of an adventure fantasy, but it deals with a little bit more trauma and a little bit more of the end of the world. One of the most fascinating pitches to me of all time is just anything involving undead camels. So <laughs> I love my undead camels. <laughs> but yes, they feature prominently in the second book. Yes. And I, I think, and this maybe ties into your accelerated release schedule with Tor as well, but your series is a little bit unique in that you actually wrote the second book first. So The Impossible Contract was the book you originally sold, and then you mm-hmm. went back and wrote uh, the first book. So I guess, what what's the origin behind that? And uh, how did you come up with The Impossible Contract story in the first place? The origin was that I had actually read a a book that I thought was a standalone and it turned out to have a cliffhanger ending and I had no idea that it was the first part of a series and so I ended up throwing it against the wall (laughs) and then I wrote a story where it was very much going to be a standalone I don't know if if you read it or if the listeners have read it but it's very obvious what I mean by that about halfway through and then you know at the time the conventional wisdom was for publishing was to sub something that was a standalone and to avoid mentioning anything about series or trilogies. So I was a bit surprised when Tor said they were interested and could I pretty please make it a trilogy? So because of that, Effer said making it so that it had to be a standalone, I actually asked them if I could write a prequel. And then the pain of having to write a sequel came later. <laughs> but yeah, so that's, that's kind of how it came about. And the other influence on writing it at the time was I was also very tired of reading fantasy where there was a cast of like seven dudes and one lady and the main character dude and the lady always, 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 always got together. And I was just like, this is not feasible. (laughs) This is completely impossible, especially when I'd read it for the 1700th time. Yeah. Um, Hey, that sounds like every book I started out reading when I got into the genre. Right? Right. Yeah. Um, And it was also, this was 2014. So this this is a little bit more in the past now. Um, And we have a lot more books that are not that now, thank God. But it was also the same time that um, Own Voices came out, basically, and started getting talked about. And that and it, and it that was the impetus for me looking at my own work because I've been writing basically since I could and realizing that I had been writing all these straight characters all this time, even though I myself am a lesbian and have been okay with that and out about that for quite some time. I'd never really thought to, to I never really stopped and questioned the fact that I was writing all these straight characters. So the impossible contract was also. My response to that, I, I just sat down and I was like, I'm going to write a main character who is 
part of an adventure fantasy. It's going to have all the adventure fantasy tropes and it's going to be fast paced. It's going to be fun. And the main character is going to be a girl and she's going to get the girl. And that's not going to be questioned. And that's just going to be it. That's where I started with. And it's just been, I just keep making it gayer each time now. Well, the third and to the best of my knowledge, final book in the series is The Unconquered City. So I guess without being too spoilery for people who haven't started the series yet, what can you tell us about this book? It's the culmination of the other two books and the themes and characters and plot too that I set out in those. So it's, it is a standalone and I did make one beta reader read it without having read the other two books. And she doesn't hate me. <laughs> and, <laughs> That's a good and she sign. Under, yeah, and she understood it. And, you know, so so it works on its own. But at the same time, well, you can read it on its own. But at the same time, I wouldn't say it works on its own. Because there are a lot of callbacks to the other books. And it does kind of continue a plot from the second book. So it is it is a story about trauma. And again, you will understand what I mean by that if you've read the second book. And it is a story about working together in a story about resilience. And it also has demons and undead camels and fights and all those other fun things. Ah, more undead camels? <laughs> okay, one, one undead camel, but yeah. That's still significantly more undead camels than any other book I've ever read, so. <laughs> I guess I need to write more books with undead camels. <laughs> uh, well, you've said before that this is a story you needed during a particularly hard time in your life. And this was one of the hardest things you've ever written. So if you're comfortable doing so, could you talk about why that is? Yeah. So it was hard for two reasons. The first was for craft and for writing. And the second was emotionally. And I'm going to talk about the craft part first, because I'm not sure how easily I'll talk about the emotional part. But yeah, so I've, I've written a lot of standalones and I've plotted out books that were, you know, trilogies, but I never actually written a trilogy. So in one respect, it was hard because I was dealing with the expectations from two previous books, trying to continue themes from those books, trying to keep it in the same voice, but with a new character and write a completely different and new story while also concluding the stories of all three. So it just was a very hard thing to balance because usually you write one book and you're not taking into account all these other things from other books. And there was also the aspect of I was trying to make it more and bigger in terms of plot than the previous two books, but also in terms of the emotional impact. So in that regard, it, it, that's why it kind of ended up for me becoming more personal than I had originally intended. And that's why Emotionally, it was also hard for me to write because I had, I guess I need to give a little bit of background. Um, we had moved, we had moved to Michigan uh, just before my, my daughter was born and we ended up, we didn't know anyone here and I was working from home. Basically, I had no friends as well as we were really far away from any family or relatives. And that was the time right after I'd given birth, but I got this, you know, notice slash email from Tor, offer from Tor to write three books. So first, <laughs> it was hard to write, to go back and write a book that came first. So the, the Perfect Assassin was also difficult to write because I was writing it during a time that like my daughter was colicky as well. So she was up all sorts of the night. She didn't sleep through the night for at least a year after she was born. Um, <laughs> at the same time, I was also trying to hold down a day job and kind of keep things together. So The Unconquered City is kind of the result of all that emotional stress because I was, I felt very isolated. I felt like I had to do everything by myself. And at the same time, I was also dealing with very severe depression and anxiety that had not been diagnosed and was unmedicated. I had no one, I felt like I had no one to lean on. And I got through that well, I, I wrote The Unconquered City in the middle of that to remind myself that, in fact, I did have people to lean on. So there's a strong undercurrent of the main character feels like she's on her own. Um, but at the end of the day, she has her family and she has her community and they've always been there for her if she would just reach out and let them help her. So it was really hard for me to write because I was basically trying to convince myself 
at the same time that I was writing it, that I too needed to let people help me. And I've always had a hard time with that. So yeah, that it definitely sounds like for a variety of reasons that this was definitely uh, an intense book to create. Yeah. <laughs> That's, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. On a slightly lighter note, you said before that uh, you like creating playlists for a lot of the books and for the series as a whole. So I was wondering uh, if you could share any songs on the playlist for The Unconquered City or even just the broader Chronicle of Gadid. Oh, yes. So I do a lot of my plotting when I go for runs. And when I go for a run, I listen to these playlists that I basically put together. Um, For The Unconquered City, I mostly had music from, I think you pronounce her name, Fleur? It's F-L-E-U-R-I-E. She's actually a musician from Detroit. Um, She's got like very haunting, gorgeous music, basically. (laughs) Um, So I had a lot of music from her and I've had music from Bastille and Imagine Dragons because they've just got killer beats. And those (laughs) those two are also the ones who kind of like threaded throughout the other two books as well and ended up being a lot of the the themes and the characters behind it. And I I don't know if it's one of those things where you could listen to the songs and understand where it was coming from, or if it's just my own head. But I have to confess that more than a few times I had plot points come out from the songs that I was listening to. So that's amazing. I love that as a source of inspiration. Mm -hmm. Do you have any particular songs like associated with a given character? Um, Illy has Hurricane from Fleur, as well as Soldier, which I almost feel like those two might end up being spoilers in a way, (laughs) but not really. Cause again, it's like, it's probably just things that came out of my own head. Um, Thana, Thana's theme song was, uh, what was it? Not shoot. What is the band that's like panic at the disco, but isn't. Um, fallout boy. There we go. Fallout boy. Yes. (laughs) They're basically the same band. Um, no, not anymore, but some of their songs were Thana's, character songs which is kind of understandable if uh, she's very strong-headed and very much about her her whole thing is about becoming a legend and becoming remembered basically so remember the name by fort minor was basically like the underlying theme for a lot of the characters in the series <laughs> because they're all except amistan they're all kind of obsessed with um, who they are and their um, legacies i actually am not that broadly familiar with most music lately. I tend to mostly listen to, rather than music, audiobooks or audio dramas mm. or whatever when I have a spare moment. But I will say I absolutely love Fallout Boy. Uh, yeah. And I do actually know the song Remember the Name by Fort Minor. So this is very yes. exciting for me. <laughs> I'm always delighted when other people, when I know other music as well, because I feel like I'm very illiterate almost when it comes to music. But I also listen to a lot of audiobooks. I just do that while I'm doing my day job a lot of the time or while I'm while I'm sometimes when I'm running um usually when I'm running I I listen to music though but I swear I listen slash read half my books through audiobooks yeah and for me it's probably well over half so I'd probably say like 75 percent 80 percent of what I Mm -hmm. read is through audio yeah I, I used to listen read a lot more when I worked in a more data entry type job so I literally I think I listened to over a hundred books one year because it was the only thing keeping me sane. Yep, that'll do it. But yeah, and I will say on the note of audiobooks, I did listen to uh, both The Perfect Assassin and The Impossible Contract in audio, and I thought the narration was excellent. So anyone who enjoys audiobooks, I recommend those. Yeah, no, I really love the narrators for both of them because I am an audiobook snob. So when they gave me the opportunity to have to, to choose narrators, I... I was very glad for that. And I'm very, I'm very impressed with what they did. They elevated (laughs) my writing for sure. So one last thing I want to hit on with The Unconquered City is I know from a craft perspective, you often talk about kind of discovering the major beats of a story while you're writing the first draft. So how different was this, if it was different at all, in writing this final book in the series? It was completely different. I usually start out with a single scene in mind, and that scene is not the ending. And then I discover the ending sometimes in the first draft and sometimes in subsequent drafts. But this one, I had both the single like 
idea of a scene as well as the ending scene in mind when I started writing it. And I don't know if that's because it was the third book in a trilogy. And so it kind of felt like, in a way, I knew where it was always heading, even if I never intended to write a trilogy. And the ultimately, what the end scene is versus what was in my head is a bit different, but thematically, it's exactly the same. So it was honestly, it was a little strange writing it. <laughs> and it was more figuring out the middle that was a lot more difficult for me this time, whereas I feel like usually it's the ending that's the hardest. Yeah, I can imagine. And that's good to hear about the theme because I feel like, especially for a trilogy, I always like kind of book three to have more of a thematic ending than maybe books one or two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... It, it, I, I think I... I think I hit that nail thematically. A few readers have come back and said so, but we'll we'll see. That's one of those things where you don't really, really honestly know until it's out there. So, Well, so before I read either of your books or really even all that familiar with you as an author at all, <laughs> uh, I found online and I thoroughly enjoyed your uh, queer adult science fiction and fantasy gift guide last year. So I'm just curious, what inspired you to create and share this list? A number of things. Uh, it all started earlier in the year and the year before when I kept seeing all these lists for YA queer books and queer YA debuts and all these lists and all these threads around that. And then at the same time, I kept hearing or kept seeing tweets or blog posts or what have you asking about queer adult fantasy. So I started just within my, I was in a debut group my first year. um, And so I started with just trying to showcase and talk about the queer books that were in my debut group. And that came with such a positive reaction that I kept going with it and started looking at books that were just coming out that year that were also queer. Um, And so throughout that, throughout last year, at least I had created multiple lists. And so I got to the end of the year and started seeing, started seeing those, those lists again, that were like, here are some, here's all the queer YA books you should buy for Christmas and all these other things. I was like, well, why doesn't anybody make a like queer adult list of the year for Christmas? And that's when I realized, oh, you know, that's kind of what I've been doing all year. And so I just put those all together and added a few more that I had missed. And it it really blew up a lot more than I thought it would. Um, I think it helps that I, I try to put a little summary about each of the books and their rep instead of just listing them out so that, you know, people can more easily find what they might be interested in. I definitely get a lot more out of any kind of list where there's more than just a bunch of titles on there. Yeah, or even just the the summary you can get on Amazon. I mean, it, it takes a little bit more work for me, but it's definitely worth it in the long run. And I've not, I know that, you know, quite a few people have come to me and told me that they found some of their favorite books off that list and other lists that I've done throughout the year. So even though it takes a lot of time and I'm not writing during that time, I feel like I'm going to keep doing it as long as people find value in it or until somebody else comes along and is like I'm going to do all the queer adult books for the next few years and I'll be like thank god (laughs) (laughs) so what what do you think of this idea that I see floating out there every now and then and sometimes it seems like it comes in waves and cycles just the idea that there aren't that many queer science fiction and fantasy books out there for interested readers to find so I'm torn between that gif from Clue with the lady with the flames on the side of her face where she's full of rage (laughs) Um, and understanding because, you know, science fiction and fantasy has, has always had queer elements, but not a lot. And it has been, it has been suffering under that image of being dominated by white male authors for a long time for a good reason. Um, And it's really only in the last 10, well, five years really is what we've seen a big, big change. But in the last 10 years, that's begun to change in, in general. So on the one hand, I understand where they're coming from because they're largely probably people who aren't as inside the science fiction fantasy community as, you know, the authors and the reviewers are. They're probably like general fans who are just seeing the shows online, seeing, you know, Game of Thrones, seeing what's displayed at the bookstore and don't understand or don't know to look beyond that but it it would also be really easy for them to just google it like (laughs) you know at this point you can just put into google queer adult 
fantasy and you will get lists. So I'm very, I'm very like measuring my rage against my understanding there because, but you know, part of that is on us and it's on the reviewers and it's on publishers to start changing that perception. And we change that perception by writing those books and by talking about more of them. So that has been, that has been a big part of why I continue making these lists is to showcase just how many books there are out there. And also, so it's more obvious where the gaps are too. Like we have one of the the biggest things that people have been pointing out um, and that I agree with is that we don't have a lot of male slash male, so that's gay men or bi men who love gay men, bi men, trans men, that whole realm. We don't have a lot of that written by gay men or bi men or trans men. And that is a gap that does need to be filled. And there are a lot of women writers right now. And I feel like that's not a bad thing. I feel like that's a correction, (laughs) again, of the last however many decades. And we need more trans writers as well. But yeah, it's, it's definitely lifting up those other books and at least letting people see that they're out there. And I think as long as we keep doing that, hopefully we can begin to change that perception that science fiction and fantasy right now is heteronormative and white because it's it's really not not as much as it used to be anyway yeah nowhere near as much as it used to be absolutely there's there's still a lot that needs to be done in terms of poc authors being allowed a seat at the table and that's changing and i hope that continues to change and we don't become complacent but some of that will change by people reading and buying those books so they we've just need to keep shouting about them. Uh, and so on that note, that's a perfect segue. Are there any <laughs> books with positive queer representation that you can recommend at the moment? Oh, God, I have lists. <laughs> um, speaking of lists, um, but just not quite off the top of my head, but some of my very favorites that I've read in the last year or two that I would love to see more people talking about. Um, the Winter Duke by Claire Eliza Bartlett. Uh, I know I've been talking about adult science fiction and fantasy this entire time. Um, this is actually YA, but I feel like it really is more of a crossover in terms of like, I, I feel like it has a lot of those adult themes and that depth of world building that you find in adult fantasy. It is the story of the nth in line to a dukedom, a duchy, a duchy. I don't know these terms. <laughs> I, I can't help you there either. Okay. I don't, I honestly don't know the, like all those terms. That's why I stayed with classics and Rome. Cause I can tell you about that anyway. So yeah, I think nth in line to a duchy, she never expects to actually have power. And then suddenly her entire family is in a coma and she is the only one left who can rule the kingdom. And she's like, you know, 14, that's not fair. Um, so it's a, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of, um, it's a, it's a not quite murder mystery, more like a coma, mur- coma mystery, figure out what happened to her family. <laughs> um, and at the same time, she ends up stealing her brother's fiance <laughs> and okay. just like making terrible decision after terrible decision. But it's like, it's a soft queer romance. And I feel like it really does a good job of looking at the fact that these are teenagers and that, you know, the decisions that they make are not always ones that should uh, last for a long time. <laughs> so it's it's very well done. It's a like a wintry icy kingdom too, and it has like killer mermaids because of course. And then another book that I really like that actually has gotten a lot of um, love and attention, thank goodness, is the Unspoken Name by A.K. Larkwood. Yes, um, and that's that's yeah. Have you read it? I have. Yes. Okay. It's um. It's more epic in scope, um, and it's got, you know, an orc priestess, assassin, guardian, warrior type, and fucking tall. And it's got, (laughs) if you've read the book, you understand. Yes. Fucking tall. And it's got, you know, like dead worlds and dying worlds. And it's kind of a treasure hunt story. Um, And it's, and it's got a sapphic slash lesbian romance at its heart that's also incredibly sweet um and it's also got giant you know undead snakes and all sorts of fun things it's got lots of necromancy which of course is always my favorite thing no undead camels but lots of necromancy okay i'll, I'll take giant undead snakes i think that's an acceptable compromise yeah it's it's okay um 
Another one that I really love that I feel like I haven't heard many people talk about is The Affair of the Mysterious Letter by Alexis Hall, which is a eldritch, elder gods story, but it's also a retelling of Sherlock Holmes. And at one point, the main character punches a shark. <laughs> and that's all I have to say, because that's what sold me. And it is just as fun and delightful as that as that entails. Um, and it's very, very gay. I'm pretty sure almost every single character is gay. And it has a, a trans masculine character as its main character, which I feel like you just don't see as much. So it was wonderful and refreshing in very many ways. Yeah, I'm going to need you to stop being so good with your pitches because <laughs> I only have so much time to read. Oh, okay. I, I have been perfecting this, so. Well, uh, back to the focus on you a little bit. I know uh, there's an upcoming Silk and Steel anthology that you have a story in. Is there anything at all you can tell us about that? Um, it is gay, which I guess it has to be, being part of a anthology about queer women who love queer women. Um, but... Otherwise, I, I've turned it in. I, I think I can say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's probably the most important thing. It, it, it has undead, but no undead camels, but it does have undead. So I, okay, I that, feel that like does I'm feel, with my, yeah. yes, on brand. Yes. <laughs> well, I know you mentioned in one of your, uh, and I hope I'm saying this word correctly because I just realized now that this is the first time I've ever said it out loud. Uh, <laughs> Debutante ball blog posts. Um, I think that's uh, right. Okay, well, good. Lucky me. Uh, <laughs> that people asking about what's next gives you anxiety. So instead of that, uh, what ideas are capturing your imagination right now? Whether you ever intend to actually like push them all the way through to publication, or if they're just exciting you right now. I'm I'm continuing to think about and write about and find that I'm writing about um, that that community aspect and that idea of you don't really have a lone hero. You have a group of people working together um, and really pushing against that, that, you know, idolizing a single person as the hero of a story. I noticed I, I was doing that in the Con Unconquered City. So it's kind of a continuation of that. And I'm also looking at um, hope um, in, in terms of, especially in terms of with the with climate change, I know this feels very outside of what I write, but it's when I imagine the worlds that I'm building, they tend to be post post-apocalyptic. And that is they are far in the future and it's post climate change. And it's a bit of how we live then. Um, and, and it's hope in that we do live and that we do continue on and we find other ways to have a civilization, even though, I, you know, jump over that middle part of the actual apocalypse, but I, I do find myself exploring that idea that an apocalypse doesn't necessarily mean the end of the world. It just means an end of a culture, an end of, of an idea, an end of a way of doing things, but that just gives us a chance to rethink and change the world for the better. I love that idea and maybe uh, potentially extra timely at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's It's been helpful, though, in my viewpoint of looking at the pandemic as like, not necessarily a hopeful thing, but that we will continue. Um, we will lose people and we will mourn and we will grieve. And it's not necessarily that what comes out the other side is guaranteed to be better. In fact, it's not at all guaranteed, but that's why we need to work together. But we we can do that. And it will be hard. But you know, we can make the world better. We just have to stab a few people along the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, sort of wrapping things up, and uh, I know this is, again, kind of an odd thing to be asking given the current <laughs> general state of the world, uh, but what's something you're either excited about or especially looking forward to at the moment? Oh, yeah, that's a very... It, it's hard, you know, because we don't know what it's going to be like in a few weeks or a few months. Um, in Michigan, they just extended the stay at home order another two weeks until mid June. So thinking about the future, it really comes down to a sort of nebulous, what I really, really, really want to do when this is over <laughs> kind of thing. We had to cancel a lot of plans 
in March. And so I'm really looking forward to going out to Tucson, which we were going to do again, we were going to do that in March. So I really look forward. The biggest thing I'm looking forward to is being able to travel again, um, to go see friends, to hug people, (laughs) you know, to be a part of the broader, you know, writing and book community again, because so many cons have been canceled as well. So it will return. Those things will return. I don't know when, but they are the thing I'm most looking forward to. Yeah, uh, well, that makes two of us because yeah. I'm really looking forward to that as well. Yeah, I was. I don't. I don't know if you know about Fourth Street. Where are you? Uh, I'm kind of in Eastern the time. general vicinity of Atlanta, so oh, south. Okay. East oh, yeah. You had a lot yeah. of things canceled. Yeah. 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 I was looking at one of the uh, Jordan Con. I think I had been looking yep. at going to that this year, and yeah. Although still supposedly uh, Dragon Con has not been canceled yet, even though it's early September and has regularly over 100,000 people. Yeah. Well, part of that might be because of insurance. Yes, I, um, that's, so. that's what I've heard is that's the main reason. Until the government yeah. officially tells them no, they don't get any payout from insurance. So yeah, so we'll see. Hopefully they they'll do keep, the right thing. Yeah. <laughs> They have to keep going and pretending like they're going to put it on, even though everybody pretty much knows at this point that it might not, um, just because right. of insurance reasons. So hopefully, hopefully, you know, groupings of a hundred thousand or more <laughs> are banned. Still you would think so. You would think so. You would think so. But if there's anything I've learned from this year, it's not to really place my hope in um, government. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. Except in Michigan. We've been doing very well in Michigan. Well, good. That's good to hear, at least. Yeah. Sorry about Georgia. <laughs> at least we Move can go here. bowling. It's yeah, it's uh, fine. You can get your haircut. It's fine. Yep, yep. Uh, well, that about wraps up everything I have for you, Kai. Uh, this has been such a treat. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast, and I wish you the best of luck for launching the Unconquered City. Thank you. It's been a lot of pleasure talking with you. You can find K.A. Door on Twitter as at K.A. underscore Door or at our website, kadoor.com. The Chronicles of Gadid have the three A's, assassins, adventure, and a lot of heart. There's also undead camels, and if that doesn't do it for you, I just don't know what to tell you. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyin.com or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server, where you can hang out with us in real time and get more book recommendations than you'll ever know what to do with. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon, where you get early access to episodes before anyone else, and we get to buy better mics for the podcast. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all our future episodes. That's all for this week. Until next time.